Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year, a weekly devotional series based on readings relevant to the current liturgical season. You can watch this series live on our YouTube page every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in, and now on to this week's discussion. Welcome. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Everything a Season, Lutheran Reflections Through the Church Year. My name is William Green, and as always, I'm joined by Pastor Brian King. But not only am I joined by Pastor King, we also have another guest with us tonight, uh, joining us for a, a special episode. Uh, Pastor King, since you two are well acquainted, would you like to introduce our guest tonight? I would. Uh, this is Pastor Tom Korchak, who's currently an associate professor at our seminary in St. Catherine's Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary. But before that, you were in Chicago at uh, Concordia University there, and, and now he's back. So welcome, Pastor Korchak. It's nice to have you with us. It's a privilege mm-hmm. and a, a joy to be here tonight. Yes, and I'm thinking about it, uh, the fact that when you were a very little boy, you would have had your breakfast, lunch, and dinners in the room in which I'm now standing. Pretty much so, because back in, in the early 60s, my father was pastor at St. Luke Lutheran Church, and or St. Lucas, as it was called at the time, and that's where I was baptized. Yeah, baptized and started out here. So a, a son of St. Luke, as it were. So we're really glad you could join us this evening, and we'll kind of continue in normal fashion, but uh, Pastor Korchak's going to join in the in the conversation discussion as well. So thank you for joining us. Yes, very glad to have you. Um, So tonight we're talking about the transfiguration. Now, uh, if you attend a church that uses the three-year lectionary, this is going to be a little bit early for you. Uh, If you're in a one-year lectionary church, we observed the transfiguration last Sunday. Um, So uh, yeah, pardon uh, if if we're getting out of order for you three-year folks tonight. but right, this happens because uh, Transfiguration Sunday is always at the very end of Epiphany. Is that right? Yeah, it's the end of the right. season, and, and 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 it is an Epiphany moment, right? Yes, yes, exactly, and in a lot of ways, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But the Epiphany season is a little bit longer for the three-year folks than it is for the one-year folks, and so that's why it's out of sync in this moment. Um, Right. Uh, so before we go any farther, should we read the gospel reading uh, for tonight, which is Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 13? Sure. I'll read that. Perfect. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, 
but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Perfect. Thank you very much. Welcome. So, uh, Pastor King, as you mentioned, uh, this celebration of the Transfiguration falls in the Epiphany season. And uh, this appears to be an epiphany if we've ever seen one in Scripture. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is this is it. Um, Jesus is appearing. He's transfigured. His, his disciples are there. Moses and Elijah are there. It's a moment when he's showing, being shown forth as, as God, as God. Right. And um, Pastor Korchuk, you pointed out uh, as we were prepping for this, one of the few instances in the New Testament where we directly hear the voice of the Father. Right. So he, always, God always speaks through the Son, right? He's always mm -hmm. speaking the word, word and the Word made flesh. But here and at his baptism, the Father speaks directly. And the, the words he spe speaks are direct words. This is my son. Listen to him. Hear him. And it, it, it sets these two events apart because you have bookends of Jesus' ministry. The, the inauguration with his baptism. And then as he's approaching his crucifixion, we have this transfiguration moment. Right. Yeah, we are right. pretty close to the crucifixion event. A few months, three, four months away, probably somewhere in that ballpark. So it's the beginning and end of his ministry. Good. Yes. Yep. That's right. And um, when we had talked about uh, Jesus' baptism a few weeks ago, which also falls in Epiphany, we again we mentioned that this was one of the most tangible manifestations of the Trinity that we have in the New Testament, because you have the person of Christ being baptized, you have the voice of the Father audibly speaking, and then you have uh, the Holy Spirit descending uh, as a dove. And and so again, you have that real manifestation of the Trinity at the baptism. And then you have something similar going on here. Right. And at first it seems like, well, where's the Trinity? You see the son being transfigured and you hear the voice of the father and you say, well, there's no Trinity. I don't see any birds flying around here. <laughs> um, but, but oh, I don't, but, okay. but, but, but the, the Holy spirit appears in the bright, bright cloud that envelops them. And mm. so you have all these three that are present at this moment. Mm. That's yeah, a good that's point. A good way to look at it. And uh, yeah, yeah. And and then of course you also have the fact that the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism descended on him and remained with him. Right. So right. the Holy Holy Spirit's gone somewhere else while Jesus is doing his ministry. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And, yeah, and that's now, a good point. Now, when Luther sees this, he says, "Well, why?" why have the Trinity there? And and in typical Lutheran style, he says it's there to strengthen and, and, and comfort Christians. So he says the whole Holy Trinity appears here to strengthen the believers, namely Christ, is Christ in his transfigured form, the Father in the voice, and the Holy Spirit in the bright cloud. Okay. So you see, Very this good. is all there for our benefit. Right. Yeah, and, and not only for our benefit, and certainly for the apostles who are there as well. So as we've seen last week, uh, Peter is having a bit of a hard time. <laughs> and uh, these two these two events uh, are fairly close to each other. So we read that this happens just six days after uh, Peter's confession, which we looked at last week. So this, this timing is, is fairly appropriate. But um, after Peter's confession, he makes this wonderful confession of faith. Jesus talks about what's going to happen on the cross and the redemptive work he's about to carry out. And of course, Peter tries to rebuke him for that. 
And that's where we get this really strong rebuke from Christ saying, get behind me, Satan. But one of the strongest Harsh. rebukes. Yeah, probably one of the strongest rebukes in the New Testament. And so uh, it might be important and helpful to have that event in mind as we think about the transfiguration. Because as we'll see, um, he perhaps does something a little bit similar uh, in this event. In fact, right. Pastor, I think you have a, a few verses here. Yeah, let's that... look at a couple of verses. Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is his great profession or confession of faith. He acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Now, just a few verses down from in Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised. And then, of course, this is when um, Peter then tries to prevent him from doing that. And he gets that rather harsh rebuke, which none of us want to hear. Uh, you know, get thee behind me, saying, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Right. Harsh. So Peter's trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross. Right. And that's a key point to bring out, because that's going to be pivotal to what's happening here on the Mount of Transfiguration and what Peter does. Yes. Yes. Now let's jump yeah. down to Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. That's kind of finishing off that section. Now, there's another interesting point. You know, John, the Apostle John receives that wonderful vision, and, and in Revelation 1, he describes what he saw when he sees Jesus. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a Son of Man, clothed in a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And of course, John also refers to this at the beginning of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now hearken back those words of the father. This is my, this is my son. Listen to him. And Peter refers to this in Second um, Peter. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, let's just finish up looking at a couple more verses before we back up. Um, Matthew 13, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. But in our transfiguration account, Moses and Elijah did get to did get to see him. Now, let me just jump ahead one slide, then I'll back up. First Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, which, of course, now Moses and Elijah get to see that. Right. So, okay, back to our discussion through that text. Right. So uh, a couple of noteworthy things from the verses that you just read. 
we might ask ourselves why this event took place at all. And we talked about this a bit already it, to strengthen believers and perhaps um, strengthen uh, sp specifically the apostles who are there, right? So we have Peter, James, and John all present on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's interesting. And it's interesting that we get these separate accounts of the Transfiguration in the sections of scripture that they authored. It's clear that it left an impression on them to say the least. Yeah, a big impression. And, and maybe we need to consider the way angels came and ministered to Jesus after his temptation. We can, we can rightly say that Moses and Elijah were encouraging him. Mm. I think mm. that's okay to think that way, especially if we look at this. You want to look at this verse now, or you want to wait? Luke nine. Uh, yeah, let's look at this now. This is okay. time to, to and behold, two men were talking with him. Moses. Now, this is the Luke account of the of the transfiguration. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So perhaps before we go any further, let's talk about the presence of Moses and Elijah to begin with. Um, why these two Old Testament figures on the Mount of Transfiguration? What's the significance there? Pastor? Pastor? Um, <laughs> see, well, see, this is where you fill in. I'm, I'm silent, and then you can talk. Right. So, <laughs> so you have Moses, uh, who is, is, is through whom the law comes. Right. And Jesus is now the fulfillment of the law. That's one aspect of it. And then you have Moses who was taken up on the mountain and there he was taken by the Lord. Um, mm. And it's interesting that on that mountain, the first mountain of Moses, where he dies, he does not see God's glory. Right. Instead, mm. he he faces his own mortality, his own death. But here, G Moses is present talking to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of everything Moses had talked about. Hmm. Um, and, and he doesn't die. Instead, he rejoices in the life that in the resurrection that's to come. And hmm. so he's, he's talking about his departure. That is the crucifixion, right? They're talking right. about the crucifixion. And sometimes we say, well, what are they talking about there? Uh, well, they're talking about the most important thing how the resurrection is going to come, but it's necessary for Jesus to pass through the resurrection in order to uh, to be glorified. And, and I think there's something relevant just in our day-to-day -day life. And often at funerals uh, or celebrations of life, like we like to call them now, they'll, they'll talk about grandma looking down or grandma, you know, they'll talk to grandma, wait for grandma to say something to us. Uh, and, and, it's like the saints in heaven are just kind of looking down and talking about what we're talking about. But here you see, they're not talking about this. They're, they're not talking about earthly things. They're talking about Christ's death. They're talking about his resurrection. They're talking about his glorification. They're talking about the very things we talk about every single Sunday, right? Right. Yeah. The, the life-giving aspect of Christ's work, right? Right. Right. It's the highlight Which is of why... A Christian funeral, that's what it dwells on, Christ's death and resurrection, and the hope we have there, not on the flowers that were planted or the horses, you know, or the dogs or whatever have you. Right. It's it's meant to point to Christ, uh, right. even in the celebration of life. The focus is, is meant to be on Christ rather than the person's life. And in some sense, maybe we can say that's what Elijah and, and Moses are doing here. So even in their conversations with Christ, they're still talking about the gospel. 
Right. Right. Well, yeah, let's call it what it is. We can talk about it as exodus, and that's the, the, the Greek word that's translated in our uh, as departure, which, of course, is an interesting Greek word to use, given Moses and all of that, this exodus. The, the, ro- the, the word means road out. Ex out of hodos means road. We use that word for our odometers in our car. It comes from the Greek, two Greek words, hodos and metron, right? To measure the mileage, to measure the road. So they're talking about Jesus rode out his way out. They're talking about the salvation of the world. Right. Right. That's the most important thing there is. Right. Right. Exactly. And um, it's really interesting. So usually we have a uh, a reading from another theologian outside of scripture at the end of the, the broadcast, but maybe I'll go ahead and bring that in here. Uh, our, our reading for tonight was from uh, Ephraim the Syrian, who's a, a fourth century uh, Christian and theologian. And he has some really interesting things to say about the place of Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration account. And he is seeing this almost as an epiphany uh, for them as well. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and read what he has to say, and then we can talk about it. So he says, Moses and Elijah gave thanks to him that their own words had been fulfilled, and with them the words of all the prophets. They adored him for the salvation he had wrought for the world for mankind, and because he had truly fulfilled the mystery which they themselves foretold. The prophets, therefore, were filled with joy, and the apostles likewise, in their ascent of the mountain. The prophets rejoiced because they had seen his humanity, which they had not known, and the apostles rejoiced because they had seen the glory of the divinity, which they had not known. I really like that parallelism there. Um, because kind of the way he's framing it, and this isn't something we, we think about, but uh, at least I don't. The Old Testament heroes that we look up to never got to see Christ in his humanity. In some sense, they had a, probably a more tangible uh, grasp of God's divinity uh, because, you know, Moses kind of had these direct experiences when he's given the law, that sort of thing. They never dealt with the, the person of Christ directly like the apostles did. It was always in a more indirect way. And so perhaps they grasped, uh, you know, the divinity more than uh, Christ's humanity. But the apostles, on the other hand, outside from the baptism, uh, they don't hear the unmediated voice of the Father, or at least they do very rarely. And so I really like that parallel. It's kind of an epiphany for both the, the prophets and uh, the apostles. Mm-hmm. That's a cool way of looking at it. Well, and, 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 Peter, and go ahead. Whereas Moses, I, I said Moses is the fulfillment of, you know, represents the law and that. Elijah is, is, is the, the prophet who points forward to Christ, right? Right. And, right. and so he, all his life, he's pointing forward, you know, Christ has come, Christ, you know, the, the Savior, the Messiah, the, he, watch for him. And and so he's taken off the, the earth, right? Um, and now he is there confirming uh, that this is indeed the, the, the Moses is confirming he's the fulfillment of the law. You don't need to do anything more. Elijah's saying this is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies. Look to him. And but that's not enough for Peter, is it? No, it's interesting though. You, <laughs> it's never enough for Peter. You bring up Elijah was you know transferred to heaven and 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 Moses had a, a bad end and so Elijah's there in his glorified body and Moses is there in the. Well, how he doesn't have his body glory, he doesn't have his body back yet. Kind of interesting. 
Right. But con- again, that first Peter verse concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So Moses was told that God would raise up a prophet like him from among the midst of the people. And now Moses gets to see that literally in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Elijah prophesied at a time when things got so bad, there were only about 7,000 people who had not bowed their knee to the pagan gods. Mm-hmm. Now Jesus steps into a time in the religious life of Israel where the Sadducees did not even believe in anything spiritual. The Pharisees had had added all these rules and regulations to God's very clear and distinct law. And spiritually, the people of Israel were in a bad state, weren't they? Right. Like, like Isaiah's time. Right. right. Hence Jesus' constant rebuke and attempted correction of the religious leaders of the day. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay, so good. So kind of to sum this up, um, we can kind of see Moses as the embodiment of the law and Elijah in some ways, the embodiment of, of the prophets. And so there's, there is kind of a symbolism here, right? Christ fulfilling the law and fulfilling everything that the prophets foretold. Right. You know, the law and, came uh, through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right. But, but we also have to bear in mind when, when we use that word Torah or law, that it's not like Moses didn't give him the gospel, right? We have to sort of temper our, or understand the use of that word law. There's like four different words that are used in the Old Testament for that. And a lot of it has to do with instruction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we think law as, as being the opposite of gospel. And we don't, we don't want to leave people with the impression, well, so Moses was just all law and damnation. And Isaiah was just prophecy. They all had these elements of gospel in what they wrote. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. Yeah. Yeah. What does God communicate to us through his son? Right. Pastor, you mentioned that, you know, God speaks through his son, right? That's the normal, the Deus Revelatus, God revealed. Right. And what's what's that message that Christ brings us? Well, and that's what they're talking about, right? It's it's uh, it's the, the 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 his death on behalf of all for for the sins of all in the fulfillment of the law in the fulfillment of all the prophecies on our behalf, right? And well, comes comes to and, a conclusion, and, right? And that's why you get the voice of the Father then. And what does he say? earlier we were talking about, oh, you know, how, how does this transfiguration, how does it all take place? And, you know, what about his divine nature and human nature and da-da-da-da-da? But the father cuts through all that, and he doesn't give a big, long explanation as to what actually is going on here. He cuts right to the chase, and he says, listen to him. This is my son. Right. Listen to him. Yeah, and Jesus also said that he came to, you know, do the will of his father and to speak what his father had given him to speak. Right. Well, that perfect message. And here you get Peter bumbling through and wants to build three tents or tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was probably not far off. He wants to, he, he again, he's not on topic, is he? No, no, he's, just picture the scene. Here you have Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and they're having this holy conversation about the most holy things, right? The salvation of the world. And and what does Peter go and do? He interrupts 
and he says, oh, let's let's build some tents or let's do this. Or he's trying to change a sub subject like this is an uncomfortable subject. I don't want you to go through a crucifixion, which is consistent with what Peter's doing. And and so while he's interrupting the co holy conversation, the father kind of jumps in and interrupts Peter and shuts him down. Yeah, I bring like, that back quiet, up first. Peter. Verse five, <laughs> verse five. Yeah, Peter, shut up. Verse five, he was still speaking when be so Peter's still speaking. He was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right. Listen to him. And that, of course, does harken back to to Peter trying to prevent Jesus from being crucified. And he receives that harsh rebuke. Words I, I pray I never hear from our dear Lord and Savior. <laughs> yeah. Get right. thee behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things right. of men. So right. what are the what are the things of God? Well, the salvation of the world, certainly for one thing. Yeah. And his yeah. son, his son bringing that bring that forth. Yeah, certainly. And perhaps let's look at Peter's reaction to all this, because uh, this is something that I found interesting as I've been listening to sermons this year on the Transfiguration. So Peter, as he see Moses, sees Moses and Elijah, says, it's good to be here. Let's build these tents. Let, let's stay here. And in some sense, this seems, uh, you can kind of take this two ways. In some sense, this seems just like an innocent, like he's getting overexcited. He's kind of overcome with emotion by what's happening. I'm sure, uh, obviously, he's familiar with Moses and Elijah, probably heroes of the faith for him. Yeah, that's, so, let's pause one second, Will. They've never seen Moses and Elijah, had they? This is something I was going to ask, right? Yeah, Do I, they recognize I, them right off? Well, Do they you know, need an introduction? You kind of wonder about that. It's fascinating because, you know, Paul says, I will know then just as I am fully known in, in, in Corinthians. And so there is this notion that in heaven we will know one another right. and recognize one another. Right. So the phrase we could use, well, it's okay, is it sort of a heavenly intuition hmm. that, you know, God enables us to see and understand things. And, you know, we only use, what, 5 or 10% of our brains, some of us less, obviously, <laughs> but... <laughs> At some level, this, and, and, and scientists still don't know how the brain works, but uh, this whole idea of knowledge and knowing and existence and all these huge, you know, huge questions, at some level, God is so gracious that he gives us this, you know, as Paul said, I will know just as I am fully known. Hmm. So Peter, James, and John, some sort of heavenly or, or to use the word divine intuition, they, they just know. Hmm. It's fascinating. Okay, I interrupted you. Go ahead, please continue. No, no, that's great. That's a great insight. Um, but right, there's two ways to kind of look at Peter's response here. And one I think is this kind of innocent, like more wholesome way. He's just overexcited. He wants to be with Christ in his glorified state, and he wants to stay with Moses and Elijah. Um, but then also, as we alluded to earlier in the broadcast, uh, he had just rebuked Christ for speaking about his own death on the cross. And that's clearly something that he is trying to prevent from happening. Even in this seemingly perhaps innocent remark, he doesn't want to leave them out of transfiguration. He doesn't want for the events of, uh, of Christ's passion to, to take place. Right. And, and I think that explains then 
where what is Luke's reaction? And if Pastor King, if you could just go to the the next part. Oh. Where it says uh, they actually all of them, right? The disciples heard this. They all fell on their faces and were terrified. They're terrified to be in the presence of God. They're terrified to hear the voice of God. People sometimes say, oh, God spoke to me or, oh, God, God gave me this message. And I like to say, you know, if God's speaking to you, that's a pretty terrifying thing. And, but, 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 awful, yeah, I don't, awful, awful yeah, in, the, in the true sense of the word. Right. But, and, and, and this is kind of the, the great part is in their terror, Jesus comes up, and what does he do? Touches them. He touches them. He reaches out, and he says, rise and have no fear. And why should they have no fear? They're they're in the presence of God. To be in the presence of holiness should evoke terror. In the Old Testament, if you went into the unveiled presence of God, that was it. Bang, you're gone. But now, the holiness, the righteousness of God is made flesh and it's not and that's why Jesus. the father says listen to him yeah right. and it's interesting luther said it you know one it's a horrible fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living god obviously implying without christ but also before luther realized the gospel in its fullness he said he would walk by a picture of jesus and and be terrified mm -hmm. be terrified so he'd see a painting of jesus and he'd be scared and I, I, I can't imagine a softer, gentler, more loving touch and a more encouraging word than Jesus saying, rise and have no fear. Right. And the touch is important. If uh, One time I was in the hospital, I was rocked with my gallbladder, right, or gallstones, just doubled up in pain. And I'll always remember it was dark. I was in the room. I was in pain. And a nurse came and just put her hand on my shoulder. And that touch communicated so much. And I think that's why Jesus uses that physicality. Uh, and he still uses the physical, doesn't he? He still well, touches us physically. Right. Yeah, and I've held hands with lots of people and prayed with them in the hospital. And uh, some people commented later to someone else, the pastor held my hand while we prayed. Right. It... it, it this contact, human-human contact, what we've all been missing so much the last couple of years, it's it's very important. It's 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 healing in its true sense. And here, Jesus touching you and saying, rise and have no fear. There's a couple of phrases that Jesus uses that I I I hearken back to and like the uh the the widow at Nain as she's burying her son and 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 Jesus just simply says, Don't cry. And how many times does he say to people, don't fear? Right. Yeah. I, I need and, those words. And even the being touched, again, in the Old Testament, to touch the holy things of God brought death. Yeah. Right. right? And and now, all through the, we have the, 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 the woman with the menstrual flow, right? And she yeah. reaches out and touches Jesus, and she's healed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Jesus usually touches as he heals right, right. Yeah. the epitome of therapeutic touch it's very it, yeah i think about uh, you know a mom soothing a, a crying child it's that kind of touch it's gentle it's calming it's reassuring it's 
And they've done studies with babies that were didn't have that kind of touch and failure to thrive issues and all of that. It's important for us even today to right. extend that touch and receive that touch. Right. And here, to use a phrase, here's a therapeutic touch of holiness. Well, where, yeah. where the Holy One of God gives us the therapy, the therapeutic touch, which makes us holy, which is, makes us clean, which makes us whole, which makes us righteous, you know, and you, which and you, makes us fit, fit for the kingdom of God. Yeah. And you mentioned in the Old Testament, if you touched the holy things in an improper way, you were dead. Uh, but here there's nothing more holy than Jesus. Right. And he just, he just goes around touching people. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when, when you go to the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the altar, I hope no one's terrified. And yet you're, you're touching the holy things of God. Yeah. Instead, we're, we're joyful and a quiet, happy joy. God continues to point. bless us. That way. Right. Yeah, good. Indeed. Right. Let's um, perhaps talk about this uh, quote mountaintop experience that they're having. And we can kind of, I think, look at this in regards to our own life as well. If you were raised a Christian, um, you probably went to like a youth camp at some point where, you know, you listen to the, this moving praise and worship music and uh, you have this um, extremely emotional experience of like closeness with God. That, that's what you're perceiving at the time anyway. And it's almost like that's what uh, the disciples are experiencing here. And if you're watching our live broadcast uh, tonight, you'll you'll hear the hymn at the very end of the broadcast, "'Tis Good Lord to Be Here." which is one of my favorite Transfiguration hymns. Now, I'll just read the last verse because I think this really illustrates what we're talking about here. It says, "'Tis good, Lord, to be here, yet we may not remain, but since thou bidst us leave the mount, come with us to the plain." So again, that kind of harkens back to, to Peter's reaction to all this. And there's like a wholesome element. And there is uh, there is like a rightness to wanting to remain in Christ's glorified presence. Right. And, and uh, these experiences are good things, even if uh, they can't last our whole lives and they need to come to an end. And maybe that's one lesson we can take away from this. Just as Peter wanted to stay on the mountaintop in Christ's uh, full glory and with Moses and Elijah, um, there are, I think, times in the Christian life where we have these very positive emotional experiences and we'd like to stay kind of in that same emotional area. And we don't want the trials and hardships that come along with the Christian life as well. And of course, uh, Peter and the apostles are about to know this better than anyone else as they're going to experience the crucifixion of Christ firsthand. Yeah. Right. And, oh, go ahead, Pastor King. Well, it's a little bit oh. the African queen where Charlie Olnut <clears throat> has to climb back out in the weeds to uh, pull the boat further out of the, out of the swampland. And when he goes in the water, he gets leeches all over him. And he climbs back in the boat and, and Rosie takes the salt and gets the leeches off him and talks about how he hates leeches. Well, being in the boat and safe is different than being in the reedy water with the leeches. And we'd all rather stay safely in the boat where everything's fine and happy and good. But sometimes we have to kind of get in the leeches. Right. Uh, I, I love the illustration of Christ coming down with them from the mountain because even though they can't stay in that uh, you know, kind of a static experience. Um, Christ is still with them, even if they don't perceive his glory in the same way they did on the mountain. Yeah. Come, come with us to the plane, right? Exactly. Pastor, the lowest part. The lowest part. Pastor, you were yeah. going to, I kind of interrupted you there. Well, I was going to say, you know, they, they are going to have to go with Jesus to the cross. 
they are going to have to stand there and watch him suffer and die. They themselves are going to have to be suffer um, for yeah. for the faith. And mm -hmm. and Jesus uses this as as an encouragement for them to confess Christ in those times. Right. Yeah. Reigns it, firm in the Word. Again, God's sequence is suffering and then glory. Right. For his son and for us as well to varying degrees. This isn't always a walk in the park. Right. No. Okay. Right. Perhaps one last point to touch on uh, before we wrap up tonight. Um, okay. Let's look at verse nine, uh, where Jesus charges them not to tell anyone about what they've seen. We've talked in previous episodes about the messianic secret, these instances where Jesus performs a miracle or does something, says something, and then tells the people who saw it not to tell anyone. Uh, I think in the instances where he's performing miracles and, or like, uh, you know, healing people, I, I think it's more obvious why he might want to keep those things a secret. As we said in the past, he doesn't want to be seen as someone who is just like a bread king or, um, you know, just healing all these physical ailments, giving all these physically and tempor temporally good things out. He wants to be seen for his redemptive work that he's come to accomplish. But here on the Mount of Transfiguration, he has like a revelation of his divinity, which that's typically something we associate with, uh, you know, something that we should be telling everyone. We want that news to get out as far and wide as possible, that Jesus is God, right? Uh, why in this instance is he charging the apostles not to tell anyone about what they've seen here? Pastor Korchak, do you want to talk about the Messianic secret a bit, or you got me to... Uh, you take the lead on this one. <laughs> okay. A couple of reasons people have proffered. One is that he didn't want the big crowds following him. That, you know, they says, wait, wait until... Uh, the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why wouldn't Jesus want big crowds following him all the time? Well, the possibility exists that they might have impeded his trip to the cross. If he had thousands and thousands of people following him all the time and wanting things and crowding him, that he could not he could not have fulfilled his mission. And that's there could have been the, more Peters out there. Right. Yeah. Trying yeah. to prevent all this. Trying to, trying to prevent because, you know, here's here's this wonderful Messiah and he feeds us and he heals people and he raises people from the dead. He's fantastic. And and pretty soon he's going to get those Romans out of here probably right. would be the thinking which they, they were thinking anyway. So for him to for him to do what he needed to do, he had to do it alone, hmm. which is sad. I think that's a good explanation. Of course, this is all kind of speculation. We can't we can't discern uh, no, exactly we, you know, why. Uh, yeah, the messianic secret is just one of those things. We have a few ideas about it. Um, some people even proffer that well, maybe it was just reverse psychology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you get healed for something. Jesus says, "Well, don't tell anybody." What's the first thing people do? Or they're going to go tell somebody. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that's kind of humorous, but it's fun to think about. But the whole idea of why did he want to keep things a bit quiet? Because the probably at the heart of it is the people's wrong idea of what the Messiah was going to be. Hmm. And to understand the Messiah, it has to be framed in the cross. 
Yeah, it's the suffering servant. Right. Yeah. It's, Anything yeah. else, you know, it, it, you tell about this cool transfiguration, everyone's going to be saying, do it again, do it again, Jesus. Yeah. Right. Uh, and they're going to miss the point. Right. Yeah. Point you, being the cross. Yeah. And, and you made me think about the bread king. When I was a little boy, I, I was on an airplane. And uh, I guess I flew from Philadelphia to Kansas or something. And I, I got a little set of wings, a little airline, whatever airline it was, a mm-hmm. little set of pilot's wings. And thinking back about it, I was more excited about those pilot wings than I was about the fact that I'd just been transported from one part of the country to, or one coast to the middle of the country in a matter of hours. Right. I, I kind of missed the point. That the, the little the little plastic or or you know little cheap little metal wings, that really wasn't a big deal, mm. but to the child me, it was it was right right right. Okay, okay excellent. Um, any closing remarks before we end tonight? Thank you, Pastor Korchak, for joining us and taking time out to be with us. It's it's good to have you from uh, the Niagara region of Ontario. And Will is here with us from Orlando, and I'm here in Ottawa, so we're a little bit um, oddly shaped triangle. But I think Will gets the nicest weather of all of us, and uh, I'm, I'm sure once again. So, okay. All right. And this has been a pleasure. We bow our heads and pray. Oh God, in the glorious transfiguration of your beloved Son, you confirmed the mysteries of the faith by the testimony of Moses and Elijah. In the voice that came from the bright cloud, you wonderfully foreshowed our adoption by grace. Mercifully make us co-heirs with the King in his glory and bring us to the fullness of our inheritance in heaven. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.